Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast, where people gather around a table and we apply film studies analysis to the films that you'll never find in a film studies course. We are continuing a uh, little uh, two-parter. We're doing the Hanks Ryan trilogy, or the Ryan Hanks trilogy. I think we should get the lady first building. I, I agree. That's why I kept calling it uh, the Meg Hanks trilogy. The Meg Hanks trilogy. Meg Hanks. And so we are going to be talking... The sequel up, to The Meg. Yes, it is. <laughs> if you did not tune in last week, we are looking at uh, Joe versus the Volcano, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail. All three <laughs> Hanks, uh, Ryan uh, team-ups. I'm going to keep saying it that way. I don't know why. Um, and oh, I flow a little uh, easier. Oh, I know why. Why do you know why? Social conditioning, yep. Social conditioning. Yep. I am I am part of the problem, folks. Um, but we, let's, we it only took you six years to figure that out. Oh, man. Let's identify these disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Who are you across the way, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. Hava, Nagila, Hava. <laughs> very, very good, sir. Who are you to my left? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Jed's got cable. Very good. My name is Dustin Sells, and I'm having a little trouble focusing because I've got a brain cloud right here. And, is that uh, what they call having a newborn in the house? Uh, something like that. Um, <laughs> it, will, it will definitely cause you, some cloud. You do look a little blotchy. I do. I feel so blotchy. <laughs> I, feel, I feel blotchy. <laughs> Every day. Every every <laughs> single day of my life. I'm not sure what the feeling of blotchy is, but it's very descriptive. Oh, you know it. So um, I, that, that, I think that's what's perfect about I feel blotchy is it's it's like the Supreme Court in porn. You know it when you feel it. You know it when you feel it. Now, ordinarily, I would give you a warning about spoilers, dear listener, because the first part of the show, we do uh, try to avoid them. However, we've already done the first part of the show. This is the second part of the show entirely. You can start here, though. So all spoiler bets are off. We will spoil whether or not Joe and the Volcano will go all 12 rounds. We are going to spoil whether or not... Uh, he gets them on the rope in the fourth. Sleepless um, finds a way to get out of Seattle and uh, find happiness in his life. Although yeah, I think he'd sleep all the time in Seattle. I mean, he I guess he did get out of Seattle. He did. The, the, the whole peak of this film is in New York. <sighs> yes. All five minutes of it. So yeah, we spoiled that already <laughs> just now, and we'll find out if the mailbox will indeed have mail within. Does that dial-up connection hold? It went to the spam folder. It, oh, too bad. That's a misconnection. That letter never sent. Um, <laughs> so return the sender. Oh, mercy sakes. Return to Cinder. I love it. I love it. So we're going to get right down to it there, dear listener. So um, already it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, and we are back with that business already. And that's right. Those dulcet tones of Jermaine Clement can only mean one thing. It's time to get down to business. It's time for me to leave my socks on. Oh, man. I like it when you keep your socks on. <laughs> I very rarely take them off. I get cold feet. It, yeah, and I don't like that either. You know, those lizard toes on the small of my back are just really uncomfortable, Dalton. Really good at picking stuff up with my feet. That is also true, um, though less useful in this particular instance. Uh, How so? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, well, I guess there could be stuff. It's always, I'm telling you right now, being able to pick up stuff with your feet, always useful. I have not heard you complain yet about him using his feet to hold your microphone for you. That's true. Right in front Six of your years face. now. Six years Six now I've been holding this damn microphone with my toes. <laughs> for the first two, we didn't even need the microphone. We just had it for decor. <laughs> Oh my, this has gotten weird. Yeah, it's uh, this will be the first episode to drop after our sixth anniversary, I, I feel like uh, it, it bears mentioning. Just, uh, well, let's get a little pomp and circumstance. Yeah, a little bit. So let's talk about Joe versus Volcano. What oh, do you, you don't even want to bandy about with the, the, the celebration, huh? You just want to get right down to it. Uh, we've been doing this six years. 
Um, you you want to ease me into it a little bit? Got a few words. Yeah. Um, we did. You think it would go this far? I, n- no. Did you think you'd created a monster? I I do. It's a real Frankenstein situation. It really is. We're gonna track you to the ends of the earth, no matter what you do. Did you think when you met us that you would end up sleeping in both of our houses? Um, no. I did not. That was I, not my first thought. I no. didn't think I would end up painting your uh, fingernails while uh, I watched a movie with your kids. Uh, that's true. You did do that once. I stumbled across that picture in my uh, phone the other day. <laughs> that is a thing that occurred. It's been a long. It's been a long road. It's, it's been, been a good a, been emphasis on long. <laughs> it's a long, it's windy, broken road, perhaps like that encounter okay, Flats. in Joe versus the Vulcan. Oh, way to get us back on track. So, yeah, let's talk about this weird, absurdist film, the only one that we watched and not directed by Nora Ephron. No, not directed by Nora Ephron. And uh, this film is, uh, what I want to say, I I was thinking about this, and I really, I kept thinking about, I read, I I was telling you guys off mic that I read uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls Again, and I sort of like, I cliff noted a little bit, Old Man the Sea. Uh, recently, because Hemingway's got this thing called the iceberg theory. Have you heard the iceberg theory for symbolism? No, no hit me with what, it. What he does is he does not uh, import any meaning to the symbols. That There are indeed symbols in his work, but he does no work whatsoever to give you any sort of codex as to what those symbols may Kind of that David mean. Lynch school of symbolism, yeah? Yeah, a little bit. Little bit. Uh, now, David Lynch, but it's more like in, within the realm of art history. Gotcha. Like, like there's definitely a codex there um, with, with him it's anything's possible it, it really makes like the room 237 situation uh, a very very likely way uh, to look at things right mm-hmm. uh, with the iceberg theory and so what is the fish the fish could be many things who is the old man who is the boy right what are the lions if you're looking at old man the sea what does it mean to call the woman the rabbit what is this a whole discussion of the horses and why are the horses important and, and for whom the belt well, a horse is a horse of course of course uh, it's what I've heard indeed Mr. Ed um, so all that's going on <laughs> and I, I, I keep thinking about later uh, Hank's work with Castaway and uh, that sort of minimalism that's there. And I, I don't want to say at the outset that I find Joe versus the Volcano to be a participant in the iceberg theory. But I do find it to be a movie that is heavily symbolic. And that's where I want to begin with. And we can start talking, what, what do we make about the broken path thing? I mean, we can talk about the places we see it and uh, what we think it may indeed mean. I think an interesting way to, to get into it is to think of, I mean, Joe vs. the Volcano comes out in 1990. And it kind of is honestly an interesting precursor for this just huge docket of late 90s, like 80, 98, 99 films about uh, kind of, American uh, late 20th century malaise, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of white collar uh, stuff you get from Fight Club, from American Beauty, uh, from Office Space. You know, all the, all these films that come out in the late yeah. 90s. The Matrix even, yeah. The Matrix, yeah, for sure. And I, it's interesting that Joe vs. the Volcano is kind of a roadmap, a broken roadmap of sorts, to these kind of films, kind of addressing this idea that uh, your your small, boring life can feel incredibly big and painful. It's bridging that gap. I think you had all this idealist yuppies who are kind of broken by the system, probably, and we transition into the 90s, and we've got that, what am I doing with my life, working for the man yeah, every night and day. Yeah, and the idea, is this going somewhere, I think seems to be the real connection there for Joe, is that he feels like he has no direction. There's no telos, to use the Greek. Uh, there's no There's no trajectory. 
uh, you know, destination that he's arriving at. And, and of course, the, the film is beginning to say, no, there really is a possibility of a goal, but there requires some sort of personal transformation in order for that to happen. And as he is going through the various events of his life, so we've got – it's basically the symbol of the proctology company that he's working for. Um, it is the uh, It is the crack in his apartment wall. Uh, we find also um, when they're walking up the volcano itself, when they're you know mm-hmm. making with their little uh, torches, the lightning bolt that kills the ship, the lightning bolt that kills the ship. Yes, all of those things are in the same stylized shape, um, you know. And the, and then the, I think the lightning bolt is that sort of intervening moment, and uh, Joe has got a real choice then because even. Up to that point, Joe is experiencing life. He realizes, you know, uh, you're going to die, so therefore live that sort of basic kind of uh, uh, moralism, uh, you know, carpe diem, dead poet society. That life is for living stuff that we know you hate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, because it's just it's so on the nose, right? But that in those in those uh, jagged turns, there are moments of intervention which provide possibility. And Joe does not really enter into life until he is floating there on his watertight luggage um, after the lightning bolt, and says, "Okay, you know what? I'm I'm going to live well, you know, in the in the time that I have, because I might have a lot, I might have a little, I might die here at sea, I might make it to Wapaniwu, but whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do something." Well, it kind of interestingly brings us back to the Matrix a little bit, right? The the, the Morpheus quote, there's a difference between uh, knowing the path and walking the path. Yeah, we know the path is broken and jagged and doesn't make any damn sense, but it isn't until Joe like kind of commits to a path, even if he can't see the end over the horizon. It's just like, well, I, I'm going to commit to a path regardless of uh, the unknowing, right? right. And i got to remember how big. Yeah, which I, great moment. Which which is very different from the moment when he encounters, uh, you know, the uh, CEO bankroller, the the mother, the father of uh, Victoria yeah. and of uh, Patricia. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, so when he encounters them, and he's like, "Okay, so I need you to do this. You're going to die. I'm going to pay a whole lot of money. You can just do whatever you want for the next, you know, eight weeks or whatever, um, so that we can get to this uh, mineral that we need for uh, superconductors." Um, he's like, "No, okay, sure." You know, it's just like it's a very different thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just this commitment to movement, but not really out of any sort of internal motivation or desire. It's like, well, I mean, I got nothing else better to do, and that that sounds like it might be fun. It's kind of uh, another turn in that that path, right? As opposed to uh, the lightning moment, which kind of feels like a revelation of a new path in some right. ways. Yeah, and so it's it's, it's huge. I, I think even uh, not even you know that way. I, I think even narratively, structurally, I, I think that that kind of crooked uh, lightning bolt thing, uh, you know, that kind of path that you're walking at the beginning, um, calls back to something like the German expressionism and Caligari or things like right. that visually. Uh, but also, I think it sets the tone of this fractured fairy tale. Uh, that really plays out before us. So yeah, I, kind I of the think, episodic nature of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and so I think it's it's firing on several different cylinders, uh, both uh, thematically but also uh, structurally throughout the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I want to talk about in terms of symbolisms and possibilities, and I don't really know what it is. Um, the three Megs Ryan. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. It, 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 it seems like something out of a Greek tragedy or uh, or something of that nature. Three it, tests or three sirens or or something like that well it's it certainly got this aspect uh of something i'm going to mention when we get to elser instead but I, I think there are plenty of narratives and stories that have this idea of figures that reoccur in a character's life that 
are all similar and yet completely different. And this idea that uh, the it comes up weirdly enough when we get to, I believe, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, his son's uh, uh, hippie girlfriend who won't stop talking about uh, past lives and stuff. Right. But th- this idea that of knowing somebody that you've just met, right? And I, I think there is a little bit of that. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say a predestination idea going on in Joe versus the volcano, but a, a little bit of uh, uh, trying to pay attention when the universe is telling you something. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a little bit of that going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I think so, too. Yeah, it's like the, you, you're looking for something, and you're starting to see what it is that you're wanting, right? And and none, uh, Dee Dee is not quite what he's looking for. Victoria is not quite what he's looking for. But Patricia is. This one's too hot. This one's too cold. And this one's just right. Goldilocks. And I good. think where the film could have made a misstep but doesn't is that Patricia is such a fully realized and interesting character on her own. Uh, with not very much screen time, no. really. And, and I, I I think it goes a long way towards, as we talked about here in the last episode, just highlighting how great Meg Ryan's performances are in this film, is that within, what, three scenes, she does a great job of kind of illustrating who Patricia is very quickly, very judiciously without, I, I mean, with help from the screenplay, sure, but a lot of that is just carried on the strength of her performance, I think. And, and I feel like a, a lesser film would not have let that character have been quite as fully realized. Um, but yeah, it doesn't just turn into a, um, the the right dame's going to fix all your problems kind of thing. It's like, no, you and the right person are going to help each other figure out some problems that you're having trouble on your own with. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of thing, yeah. Does that, that makes sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And it, it just, you know, that sort of recognition and opening up your eyes so that you can finally start seeing. Yeah. You know, paying attention to what's going on. Um, last thing, well, not last thing, second to last thing I wanted to mention is uh, the, what I really have to say is a baptism scene. You know, that use of water. Um, when we have that green encounter, that, again, it, yeah, you kind of alluded to this last episode. I mean, when you're speaking film language, right, if the, if the vial has poison, it's green, right? If it's aliens, it's green. And if it's supernatural, the glow from the, you know, the, the uh, dry ice, um, you know, the light that you put under it is always green, right? And so they're, they're definitely speaking sort of standard uh, cinematic language there. As the storm is rolling in, that everything is deeply, deeply coated green as they enter into the time of the storm, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, Joe has to jump ship uh, in, in the course of what's going on there. And when he does so, and he fully is immersed in the water, and again, it's very much of a baptismal uh, kind of thing, and then he moves from that to his confession of God, which is a confession of his lack of knowledge, right? That God whose name I do not know, you know, um, thank you for my life, and I forgot how big. Yeah. And uh, and so that 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 movement is clearly spiritual. I mean, it, it's definitely like removed from all the sort of standard religious iconography and imagery that you might want to use um, in, a, in a traditional baptism scene. I'm thinking like the Godfather or something like that. It's, it's not really going for something overtly Christian uh, when it does that. But it is talking about a rebirth. It is talking a moment of transition. It is talking about something like what is the traditional Jewish uh, rite of baptism in which uh, when the uh, baptismal, uh, usually for Gentiles, when the person was baptized into Judaism, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's actually a rite that's older than Christianity. And so when John the Baptist in the Gospels is doing this, it's not a, it's not a new thing. Um, they usually did it, um, they were butt naked, 
Um, and uh, after they were brought out, they were wrapped in swaddling clothes like children, like babies, and mm-hmm. given milk to drink mm-hmm. because you've been born into a new life, right? Well, and I, I think it, it decidedly, as we've talked about, these different broken segments throughout the narrative uh, and throughout the themes, it, it stands in sharp contrast to when old man What's-His-Doodle uh, frees him from his malaise by giving him a big-ass pile of money. Yeah, Lloyd Bridges, whatever his character name is. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, you cannot be freed from your concerns by another person, right? That that quest comes from within. It's not something somebody can give you. Mm-hmm. It's not something that somebody says, here's five credit cards with no limit, go wild. It's something that uh, you have to say, nope, this this is what what it is for me. Yeah, so it's a firmly, you know, idealist uh, for, for in, in in terms of phenomenological sort of ideas uh, of a spiritual awakening, and uh, you know that's I think it's interesting uh, that it does that kind of thing. And I mean, you see a very similar thing going back to the Matrix, as you mentioned it, and that's what I wanted to come to is when uh, Neo is awakened from the pod. What's he done? He gets flushed down this hole and immediately into the water, and then he's risen up, you yep. know, br- br- brought yep. up into the Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, begins to see with his into eyes. blinding light. Yeah, the, see with his eyes that he's never used before yeah i mean so it's the same kind of you know that baptism imagery which is you know replete throughout film um but i just want to point out you know it's a very good use of yeah uh, that kind of imagery here it's a great moment yeah. it's the moment of the film really i mean uh yeah. it unfortunately leads us into our uh <laughs> A very confusing time at the island. Yes, and that's the last thing I did definitely want to address. Is well, okay. that's why I wanted to go ahead and talk about old man money bags first because uh, you know th- that's who gets us here, right? Yeah, but then we got Abe Vigoda and we've got the Wapanis. And Abe Vigoda's fun. <laughs> Abe Vigoda is he fun. Is very fun. But oh boy, do you love her? Do you love him? Why are you married? It's, it's a it's a fun moment. It's also a real racist sequence. Yeah, it's not good. So how is I mean that's the question. How racist is this? Is it okay? On a scale of one to ten, uh, I'm gonna say a six at least, probably. Yeah, maybe a four to five. I don't know. I mean, it's it's mid level racism. It seems like that they cut their corners by saying that they're Irish, Jewish. Jewish. And, and Polynesian. Polynesian. They yeah. they do make a point to be like, we we're doing a thing. This movie's been absurdist from Jump Street. Just hey, bear yeah. with us, and that's fine. I, I guess you know it, it's never outright bad to make stuff up. That's okay. It's just when you bring in. Uh, what's the best example? I think the best example I can think of is uh, all the criticisms that get leveled at uh, the cyberpunk aesthetic. Right, um, all of these. Uh, Neo Pan Asian cities with uh, nothing but white people, mm-hmm. right? And that's I think that's where it becomes a problem. It's only a problem in the larger context of bad representation, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it is a very casual kind of racism. We are is... man. We we how do we manage to run through all these thorn patches uh, for for white guys on this damn show? Yeah, we're doing our best. I promise. But it is quite colonial in, in the sense that they are backward. They worship the the mountain, and yeah. they, they they they're obsessed with you know this triviality of orange soda. Yep, <laughs> like all all of those little ticks there. The gods must be crazy. Are uh, yeah right. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very very much sort of uh, you know um, Occident versus Orient um, kind of colonialism, and uh, so that is it's troubling. And they just use the trope and kind of run with it. And uh, it w- would be remiss not to at least name it. And you know, the, oh, go ahead, Arthur. I was just going to say they chant Hava Nagila, and it's a funny moment. It is funny. It's a funny moment, but yeah, it, it all ties into this larger weirdness. And I guess we should give credit where credit's due. The film does pay lip service to the fact that like. These are people that uh, are 
interest is paid to them only for their natural resources. Yeah. Right? You know, the villain of the film so much as there is one, there really isn't. But as close to the thing that the villain, the film has to a villain, a guy that has what one scene in the entire movie, right. yeah. is trying to get this guy to kill himself just so he can uh, steal resources from these people. They're unobtainium, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, there's always <laughs> something. So uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it, 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 there's definitely a way in which it sort of it acknowledges its colonial sort of bent, but nonetheless, it does not interrogate that it, in any sort of meaningful way. It's a white guy screenplay. Yeah. It, it's a guy who means well, who knows like. This is the only way I know how to tell a story, even though I know that this is probably not the best way to tell it. Yeah. And he tries to mitigate that as best he can. Your mileage may vary. I mean, if you find it reprehensible, I don't think any of us are going to hold that against you. But if you can see past it, I still think there's there's a lot of good there. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on, um, as Arthur yawns, to Sleepless in Seattle. Which, Sorry. Well, look, that's a film that brings out the yawns in all of us. It does, it does. Um, also known as Ambien for Lonely People. God, I fucking hate this movie. Yeah. Um, Why do you hate this movie, Dalton? Because the first 30 minutes have such promise, Arthur. And I know we talked about this on the last show, but I guess now's a, the time when we drill into that. What is it about the next, what? This is almost a two-hour movie. Um, no, sorry, you've got mail's two hours. This is like hour 40-something. The first half hour is really interesting. It feels like two hours. It feels like it goes on forever. It's an unending path, much like the path that Joe walks to work. So <laughs> the, the first half hour is really interesting, right? We have, we have the nuts and bolts. It's a film that opens with a father explaining to his son, sometimes people die, and sometimes that person's your mom. And it's a... It's a hell of an opening for a film to have. I mean, it opens up on this big shot of, of the, the graveyard and the, the skyline of Chicago and this guy who's tired of people telling him he should go to therapy, he should do this, he should do that, I'm sorry, better place, all the platitudes that people give you when somebody you love dies, and he says, fuck it, I'm moving to Seattle. Come on, kid, let's go. Okay, cool. We get this introduction to Meg Ryan and Bill Pullman's weird, sneezy character um, and her boring, rich family. And they're boring, rich ways, but her mom drops some wisdom on her that kind of freaks her out. And she goes, shit, I don't think I love my fiancé the way you and dad love each other. And then she hears this guy talking about real unbridled love, and it kind of, like, wakes her up a little bit. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, this is going to be an interesting movie. And then we get to Meg Ryan stalking Tom Hanks and kind of losing herself and her identity and any sense of personal responsibility or reasonable ethics in the pursuit of trying to get to know this guy because she's afraid of getting lost in the shuffle. And it's such a contrived obstacle for the film to create that every woman in America is sending him mail and, it, and you know, unsolicited phone calls and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it, it, it just feels like a narrative to give her a reason why she can't just call the guy or can't just be like, you know, reach out and say, hey, I heard you on the radio. I think we should go on a date. Like, it just, it keeps inventing reasons they can't be together, whether it's Tom Hanks's new girlfriend uh, or, you know. Who's perfectly nice despite a weird laugh. A very weird laugh. Laughs too much. Laughs like a hyena. But but she's very nice. She's laughing at things that aren't funny. Don't do it. Hey, hey, everybody out there, don't care who you date, don't laugh at it if it's not funny. It's not a good move. It's true. It's just embarrassing. Everybody feels weird when you do it. And it just keeps inventing these these obstacles that don't make any sense. It keeps asking us to believe that these characters are going to behave in unrealistic ways, whether it's, you know, uh, Rosie O'Donnell sending the letter without Meg Ryan's uh, knowledge, whether it's Tom Hanks and his brother-in-law laughing at his sister for thinking a, an affair to remember is a, is a good movie that makes her cry, or Tom Hanks not listening to his son about literally 
fucking anything uh, or saying, hey, uh, are you watching porn at Jed's house? Uh, why do you know these things about sex that we haven't talked about yet? Like, whatever it is, the characters just keep doing these dumb things. And unless it's him and Carl Reiner talking about tiramisu or butts, it's not particularly funny. Uh, so I don't understand what purpose it serves. You know, thematically, I'm already off. I've just checked out because I think it's saying reprehensible things. But then it's not even entertaining. And uh, that's why it's bad. Uh, so I, I guess there we have it. Now now let's, uh, we, we've named it. Let's crack it open. Well, I mean, I think part of the big problem is that it is a movie that is about transitions in patriarchy. Now, I'm not going to say that the patriarchy started falling down in 1995 or whenever. When was 1995? Correct. Correct. Uh, I'm not saying that that was a thing that was starting to happen or that it has happened. but um, It probably has not. Um, no, absolutely has not. But definitely some of the uh, facade, some of the ornamentation of uh, of patriarchy has been being been being interrogated over the last couple decades, and this movie is thoroughly reactionary about that. And so we've got you know women doing women stuff, women into women stuff. So women like chick movies, guys like dude movies, right? There's that thing going on yeah. there, and and there's this idea that Joe, not Joe, what's his name now? Sleepless, sleepless. It's not uh, important. Doesn't matter. Uh, Tom Hanks w- needs to date now. Um, and it's different, and you don't know how to act, and it's frustrating and scary, and you don't know how to negotiate things because there used to be rules which were all about the domination of men by women. I mean, that's fun, and because those rules are no longer in place, uh, I do the asking, she does, she does the you know accepting, I do the paying, she does the you know the sex, <laughs> those kind of standardized ways in which these things are supposed to be broken down, and because it's new and hard to negotiate, they look at your butts now and they like them. You know, like what's what is what is these sort of new ravenous with these women that are interested in tom hanks they send a mail it's not 1977 no i mean and that's the thing that i find so irritating it, it, it's the it, it's the thing that happens in a lot of uh i wouldn't even just say screenplays i would just say stories in general it's this conflation of cultural mores changing and shifting it's the conflation with that with just generational things you get older the dynamics in a relationship change you're not you know single and young you're in your mid-30s and you have a kid, dating changes. When you are dating other adults, everybody is fine. Nobody needs anybody else. And I, I think it's that conflating with adult dating with adolescent dating and that, that transitional period and taking that and putting it upon these changing social norms and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, those are two different things. Yes. And trying to turn that into one issue just makes for... A messy narrative and a messy theme. Yeah, and it, it, it just it's, it's frustrating to watch because I'm like, well, uh, no, what you have to learn how to negotiate is, no, you do not any longer have a – well, there definitely still exists patriarchy, so don't get me wrong. But you don't have the exact same power structures you once had with which to negotiate the, you know, the appropriation of a spouse. And so now you have to learn how to just be nice. Well, and it's, it, it's this equivocation of uh, all – heterosexual dating with traditional gender norms, right? I mean, this is the same time period that you've got stuff like, well, it had already been a bestseller for a couple of years, but the Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus book, Mm -hmm. whenever that was in publication. It was huge in the 90s, though. Right. Um, It's that same kind of thing. It's this this whole culture. And so I'm I'm not trying to, like, throw Nora Ephron under the bus because everybody's thinking this way in the mid-90s, it seems like. So I want to 
put a huge disclaimer out. I don't I don't think we're trying to be too mean to the filmmaker. It's just that I, I think this is a time when nobody knows how to talk about this potentially. Right. Uh, and again, it all comes back to things like character believability. The same man that can open up on the radio about how much he misses his wife and like just finds himself sitting on the couch just thinking about talking to her is the guy that finds the idea of crying at a movie laughable. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the same person. It, it seems unfathomable that it could be the same person, in fact. Just like the, the Meg Ryan that finds this emotional honesty so enticing would hide in her damn laundry closet with a phone to call into the radio. Or I think she's trying to call Tom Hanks at that point, actually. No, she's on the phone with his son. That's right. No, she's talking to... She's listening she's to the radio to show O'Donnell. talking to Rosie O'Donnell. That's right. That's right. See, and she doesn't want to get found and out. This is the problem. The film just like loses you at a certain point because you kind of start checking out in places because yeah. you're just like, when is when are we going to get to the end of this movie and figure... It becomes very clear. I didn't actually know this going in that they don't meet until the very end of the film. I wasn't aware of that, but it becomes pretty clear about the halfway point. Oh, they're going to they're going to make us wait for this. Yeah. And and that wait just the the only way it communicates anything is that Tom Hanks see, happens to see her at the airport when mm-hmm. she's first there to stalk him and he is blindsided by the beauty of Meg Ryan, which okay, fine, Meg Ryan's very pretty. Fair enough, but that is enough for him when he sees her at the Empire State Building to go. <sighs> It was you all along. Yeah. No, it wasn't. You don't know anything about this woman, other than that your your son he thinks she's pretty good. He wanted to bring her. Uh, 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 well, yeah, we'll get to that line. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to you've got mail shortly. <laughs> it's just this cavalcade of nonsense that I just find, uh, I don't know, frankly off-putting. Uh, somebody, you know, look, I, I'm not going to stand here and say uh, I'm some great defender of the marital industrial complex, but as somebody who's about to get married and feels pretty pretty damn good about it, uh, this movie isn't what being in love looks like. No, I, I like to think that I'm in love. I'm not make me an authority on it, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like that, man. No, well, it, I mean it, that sort of universal universalization of that experience, like that. This is what my mom and dad had. This that's Meg Ryan's experience. Yeah, and I don't have that. I think she could have been quite happy with Bill Pullman because Bill Pullman's a very nice guy. Yeah, and I mean it, it, anyway. Well, uh, and he. I, I do like the dunk that he gets. The uh, I don't want to be settled for. Right. I'm, yeah. I I like who I am. Yeah. I like that I'm a weird sneezy guy. Like, don't settle for me just because we like the same silverware. Right. And and the, the, that weird way in which movies say you know you you've, you've got the one true love and you've got to find that person and, and and loves work and you know I mean you know this is a bad song reference but you know if you can't be with the one you love you got to love the one you're with and uh, that's that's you know that's it there is. That's 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 the work of it. Look, and, I want to believe in the cosmic entangling of beings as much as the next person. I tend to give a little credence to that kind of thing, but I also believe that anybody on the planet could probably fall in love with you know about a million other people on the planet. Yeah, absolutely, give or take. Let's talk about the meta, the meta aspect of this. Oh, the affair to remember yeah, stuff. Yeah, because uh, it's it is a recurring theme within Efron's work. Mm-hmm. I think at least in these kind of you know we see it in When Harry Met Sally, which he wrote. Uh, then we see it here, and we also see it in uh, "You've Got Mail." What's the uh, the big touchstone reference in "When Harry Met Sally"? Because I haven't seen Casablanca. That. Casablanca, okay. and I think in in there, I mean, there are a couple moments where they talk about the film, uh, you know, just in conversation, and then there's a moment where they're both on the phone watching it on TV or whatever, and they do like the split screen thing where they're side by side, they're watching it. Man, um, I got to watch "When Harry Met Sally" because that sounds adorable. I, I love "When Harry Met Sally." I think it's great, um, but. 
I I think there, it it seems to kind of reinforce that theme. Will they? Want they? Mm-hmm. You know, how is this going to play out? You know, is she going to mm-hmm. leave him at the airport, or you know, how does it how does it end? Uh, but here it seems it, it's more than on the nose. I mean, well, it opens up with. I mean, this movie, speaking of Casablanca, opens up with time goes by. Yeah. Right. The the uh, the 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 big you know musical cue from Casablanca. Yeah. So yeah. It, mm, I don't know. But let's, I mean, just speaking about an affair to remember, how does that kind of work its way into this narrative? Well, I mean, it's more than just homage, and it's more than just uh, informing the narrative. It, it, it's Yeah, well, the plot contrivance of Affair to Remember is a lot more like You've Got Mail than it is like what we have in Sleepless in Seattle, because it is a little bit of this sort of pride and not wanting to put somebody out and uh, don't want to admit this sort of thing um, that's gone on where she's now become crippled. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is and it, the, him becoming very stone-hearted and steely towards her and sort of overcoming those, um, you know, antipathies between the characters. Uh, what ends up happening uh, with that? And, of course, they... they I don't know. It, it, it's a different. It's a different motif. It seems to me, Dustin. You mentioned earlier this uh, the, the trying to universalize the experience of love, and I, I think maybe Efron's trying to get at something. Uh, you know, stories are stories about love are how we find context for love in our own lives. I mean, it. I, I, it's funny. I was listening to uh, Unspooled. Uh, this uh, podcast where uh, Amy Nicholson and uh, Paul Shear go through the AFI Top 100, and they were talking about High Noon. And uh, they made this interesting point about the the idea that um, all semblance, really, of history is from the stories we tell each other about history. And I think you could extrapolate that out to stories about love. The way we contextualize being in love, the feeling of being in love, really the only note uh, guidebook we have to work from is stories about love, whether that's film or music or whatever. And I think maybe Efron is trying to get at something there that, like, the stories we tell each other about being in love or how we know when we're in love. Because you can't really articulate a feeling. You can only try to describe it with art. Um, the problem is this film doesn't do a very good job of doing that, and it wants to you lean on other films uh, to try and accomplish that. And I think it sounds like when Harry Met Sally does that much better, and You've Got Mail definitely does it much better. Uh, but it seems to me that this meta interest in her work might be speaking to that. And I think there's something there, but I, I, I don't think it really connects for Sleepless in Seattle quite that way. But I, that's that's my best theory on, on the reason for that meta aspect. Well, when I said I didn't know a minute ago is because I didn't want to say something pretty cynical, but I think I'm going to say it anyway. Uh-oh. Um, and that is, I think it's an easy way to pitch to producers and market a film. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, that is... Makes for an easy log line. It's an easy log line. You know, it, it, it's, you know, it's it's Casablanca in space, you know, or whatever it is you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, with your... Which, give me that movie stat. Damn, I would uh, watch that. <laughs> Isn't that Alien? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Rip... Rick became a lot darker in that case. <laughs> Listener, what is Casablanca in space? Has it been made? Where can I find it? It's, uh, it's Han Solo and Leia. Uh, there's a, You know what? There might be something to that. We'll always have Tatooine. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they never hung out on Tatooine together. <laughs> yeah, well, they did. <laughs> pushed, I, I, didn't you see me push up my glasses? I was being a pedant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, it doesn't matter what the answer is. I was doing a bit. Uh, uh, but yeah, so I, 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 there's a way in which you like we're going to use all these sort of old 
love story movies, these these chick flicks, right? And we're gonna it's gonna be funny, and we're gonna find a way to engage the audience because we're gonna have this great little um, you know Dirty Dozen reference, and uh, we're gonna use some you know modern update kind of stuff. But we know these movies are crazy popular, these screwball romantic comedies of the 1930s and 40s, and we're gonna connect the dots to all of that and really update that and window dress it for uh, the uh, the 20th century, the late 20th century. And I mean, yeah, I, I feel like it's a marketing ploy. And I yeah. mean that's cynical. It is because I think she does love what she's doing, and I do think that there's genuine sort of affection for the material. But there is also um, an industrial um, marketing sort of and impulse I, there, man. Yeah, and I try to forget about that, but you're right; it, it can't not be forgotten about when we're talking about art produced in a commercial system. It, it, it bears mentioning. You're absolutely right. So yeah, that's that's my more cynical take on that. Um, so Meg Ryan's a stalker, yeah, uh, without a doubt, a little bit. She was definitely Facebook stalking before that was a thing, hiring AAA Detective Agency to uh, trendsetter. That's what she is. Hunt down, hunt down Mr. Sam in uh, Seattle, and uh, yeah, it's 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 odd. It's an odd character choice. Um, it's not a great character. I mean, it's it's, it's part of a long, proud history of giving women conflicting messages about how to be in a heterosexual yeah. relationship. But it was a normalization of toxicity, too, right? Big time. But again, it's telling audiences that this is okay because she's in love. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's okay that, that you're having a, a potentially a, a bout of psychosis. You're in love. It's fine. No, it's not okay. You can, you can have a good feeling when your brain's not in a good place. Right. It happens all the time. Truth. It happens a lot. Uh, don't, don't do it. Call a doctor. Call a friend. Which is, she know. can't call her friend because her friend exit on. That's right. She's an enabler. Pick better friends. Yes. Find people in your life who are going to take care of you. It's just... It is an active description of a mental breakdown without ever naming it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's deeply, deeply disturbing to me. Right. I don't know if anybody else got rubbed quite as harshly the wrong way as I did. But man, I, I was kind of blown back by this that this plot point being in the film at that meeting in the street. And I know he, I, I realize that she thinks that um, the sister is his girlfriend when she. Uh, I think that is his girlfriend that he's with at that moment, actually. I, when Meg Ryan shows up, yeah, no, it's his, no, sister. It's his sister. It is his sister. It's okay, because okay. that's the joke, right? She runs up to hug him, and she gets the wrong idea that's because right. it's the the girlfriend or whatever. That's right. That's right. right. But and they have a, the same hairstyle. <laughs> mm. They do have the same hair because it was the early nineties. But they 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 make this sort of bolt of lightning sort of look at Ooh, each other connection. Dream weaver. But you got to talk. I mean, you, you have to speak to the person at that place. To anything else is not. It's 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 just, it's weird. You know, it's it's not the thing. It's not the way to behave. How do you tell that story? Because you know, this film ends with them getting in the elevator, holding hands. And then, like, what's what's what happens when that door closes? Like, why were you in Seattle? It's a it's a real uh, the graduate moment, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a real. Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. What was going on there? Yeah. So yeah, I'm I was there on work. I wanted. I I'm <laughs> say, I want to watch the movie that starts in, in that elevator. elevator. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to know the conversation about her stalking it's him. Just an hour and a half of them going down the Empire State mm-hmm. Building in that elevator. Ooh, the elevator gets stuck. Yeah, Hold and then on. it becomes devil. Ooh, ride it. The elevator gets stuck, and you know the the bellhop's got a picture of his um you know girlfriend. He's gonna ask her to marry him, and <laughs> and he decides he's sick of Parker Posey. Damn, you've got mail. Really, is a sequel to Sleepless in Seattle? 
So uh, let's move on to uh, see the sleep- way better movie. It's like Sleepless in Seattle, an alternate universe where that movie was good. Man, yeah, it really kind of is. It it really is like what if uh, Nora Ephron had taken another like three drafts of Sleepless in Seattle. Now we can transition this in the meta narrative because let's, let's we talk that, about yeah. uh, Fair to Remember. We talk about Casablanca. Here we've got two, three primary influences. Obviously, an adaptation of an earlier film, which is an adaptation of a play. Um, it, tweaks it a little bit because in the uh, shop around the corner they they work together yep. but here uh, he's got this Barnes Noble S a haberdashery in Budapest of all places which yeah. really sounds like a bad improv suggestion <laughs> <laughs> it can be a place yeah, it, it can be a place at a work a workplace <laughs> in a city that's very funny it's, this week on whose line is it anyway exactly yeah yeah um, but it, it tweaks that formula but that is influencing obviously the script but we've also got uh, and, and I think the casting there, what uh, Carrie Grant, or not Carrie Grant, but uh, Jimmy Stewart, right, is, right. is in that one. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of uh, sets up what we've got here as far as we read it. Um, but we also have, I think, to some extent, Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. as well as The Godfather, mm-hmm. um, which is incorporated great, I, I think. It, it, they both are. Yeah, uh, but I, I I think The Godfather being the guy's film here, and you know The Dirty and, Dozen, and the other film this is The Godfather, and we get that great monologue which we referenced last week, where Tom Hanks is explaining how it's so good. all of life's lessons are answered in The Godfather. It, it does a much better job of can, look. I, Dustin said chick flick earlier. I was preparing this whole tirade about how calling movies chick flicks is reductive and don't talk to people who do that. Uh, and I agree. I still stand by that, yes. But I'm going to walk it back a little bit to say there is a point. There are stories that are marketed towards uh, female-leaning. Uh, I, I wouldn't even – people with feminine energies. I'm not even going to try to, like, gender it or or put a sex to it. Just, there's there's stories with feminine energies and there's stories with, with masculine energies, right? Sure. And pe- different people engage with those stories in different ways. I think you've got – male does a really good job of contextualizing that, though, in – Sleepless in Seattle is just a joke, right? It's him and Victor Garber having a laugh about uh, Dirty Dozen. But in this film, all all of his lines about The Godfather, this is somebody who like really likes this movie and like right. thinks about it. It's not just a film that he, he thinks is cool or badass. It's a film that he thinks about, and there are lessons to be gleaned from it, just like Meg Ryan's character thinks that there is something powerful and important and something to be gleaned from Pride and Prejudice. And I, I think this film does a much better job of contextualizing um, how men and women in heterosexual relationships engage with with storytelling as, as it relates to uh, their their attempts to to get laid, for lack mm-hmm. of a better way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it, as a meta text, I, I think it does integrate them better. Um, you know, obviously, it is it is as far as the uh, shop around the corner, um, the and the uh, play. Uh, the Jimmy Stewart film in the play, um, it is really uh, the same thing. It's the update, right, we talked about earlier. It, it is simply just moving that into, okay, so it's not going to be letters from a postal service. It's going to be, you know, email and this sort of new thing called AOL, um, which was, you know, very funny uh, to watch in its very 90s. It's a smart adaptation. Yeah. It really is. Setting it that way. But that being said, it is much more intertextually playing with those ideas of, oh, okay, where's your pride? Where's your prejudice? You know, you sort of assume this about a person. This is where you're, you don't let your pride come down. And, you know, so who's Darcy and who's uh, Elizabeth? Is that the name of the character? Yes. Um, sure. Well, it's been a minute since I've read Jane Austen. But, but it's also got the same thing going for The Godfather, right? If everything's going to the mattresses, if everything's just business, then nothing's personal. And right. whatever else, shouldn't it be personal? Just 
good line in this movie. Which is exactly what changes things up in The Godfathers. It gets personal for Michael. That's why he kills Salazzo. Well, anyway. Uh, yeah, I, look, it means Tom <laughs> Hanks has been watching The Godfather close enough, if anything. Yeah, correct, correct. Because um, <laughs> I love The Godfather. He, he he gets the cool factor of The Godfather, That's but he true. doesn't get the message. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's a, oh, he's a guy who never took down a Scarface poster. Ooh. Yeah, is it? He's, yeah, he every, doesn't get Fight Club. He's just got those shorts in every fucking color. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> oh my god no i was ooh, ooh, man. can you picture tom hanks as alien oh, yes i, I, I can <laughs> I, I started to picture james franco as tom hanks in this movie and it oh, ruins the movie it's, yeah it's creepy don't like it it's anymore i like tom hanks as alien though <laughs> so i mean everything that we i got volleyballs every <laughs> color so i think everything chocolates <laughs> you guys are nuts everything that we I got uh, those two Everything that we sort of talked about, I think you can definitely see a through line between Sleepless and this, and even to a lesser extent, Joe versus the Volcano. But the real big transition here, I think, that's that's substantially different thematically, is the Luddite um, sort of uh, impulse that we see on the part of Greg Kinnear's character. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and, the, and this movie is about this sort of use of technology. You meet somebody in a chat room. And that you exchange emails, you don't know them IRL, right? Which which doesn't exist yet. Uh, in Sleepless in Seattle, we have that um, you know the girlfriend of, of of Jonah who keeps using uh, the abbreviation, sort of anticipating the future of LOL and text yeah. speak. And, yeah, man, that that little kid character really did predict uh, millennials, huh? It's a, it's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, but so this movie is also wrestling with technology in terms of relationships which i think is interesting well uh, i think we, we hinted at it last week it's actually very forward-facing in its approach to online relationships because for a long time their online relationships were kind of, they were the butt of the joke they Only were the losers yeah date online you can't find a person in real life even long after this movie came out. yeah i, I mean, mean up until i would say the last 10 years yeah i mean it took a long time to get past that sort of social taboo of online dating but this embraces it with open arms nor everyone is ahead of the curve on this she is. for sure yeah and, yeah. and I, I think you're it is fun to have that greg kinnear character in here um and anybody who would askew and say we can't go forward is a dipshit Right. Uh, because you can't fight the wheel of progress. You can only work around it. Absolutely. And, I mean, it, it, it doesn't – the thing I, I find interesting is it doesn't really negotiate that in a very fair kind of way. Because I agree. I think we need to embrace the, the century in which we are living, and that means there are technologies that we must adapt ourselves to in order to function in a, in a new society. That's just necessary. But there is um, – there, there is always change, and change. All people are never afraid of change. People are only afraid of loss, and there is loss, and there are certain things that can indeed be lost. And and to just simply make a joke of Greg Kinnar and his use of you know old school typewriters is not to say, well, wait a minute. I mean, are there times in which we we fail to connect to one another now? Well, I, I think what you're getting at is something the film touches on, but completely by accident. And it's the the last act of the film. I wouldn't even call it a full act. It's almost like an epilogue. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's that final fifteen minutes. It is the ability and ease with which Tom Hanks leads a double life uh, when he becomes friends. So if you decided to skip the film, that's fine. Real quick to catch you up, uh, Tom Hanks has realized he's in love with Meg Ryan, but he's also destroyed her business, and he doesn't really know how to open. Hey, uh, you're the love of my life. We've been emailing for like a year. 
Also, I'm sorry I killed your dreams. So he inserts himself into her life uh, with an olive branch and makes makes a legitimate good faith attempt to be like, I'm really sorry. Like, I think you're a good person. I want to be your friend. What he doesn't tell her is that he is also in love with her and he emails her as, you know, uh, somebody she doesn't know. And he embraces this double life and plays her against these two different versions of himself. And I think that is the film kind of touching on perfect completely by accident because it's played for meat cutes honestly mm-hmm. um and you know uh culminations of the relationship it, it, well it mirrors the arc of meg ryan in sleepless in seattle i mean he gets a little bit that moment he i mean that's his character here is that kind of he's kind of stalking her yeah um it's a lot more hands-on obviously since he's with her and can lie to her you know rather than just stalk her but it, i mean it seems to be kind of a parallel and, and again and it has the same problem that sleepless in seattle has where he reveals to her, I have been both men, and she's so happy. Yeah. She's yeah. so happy that he's been both men. Doesn't at one moment go, wait a second, you lied to me, you he turkey. Gaslights her, and he mm-hmm. ghosts her. Both. Two big no-nos. And she still wanted it to she's be him. Just so happy it's him. And and again, I, I think this is a... We're, we're looking at this film almost 20 years removed. We actually... No, yeah. 20 years 20 removed, years 1998. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking at this film 20 years removed. There's a lot that has changed about the ethics of online communications and the intersections of your online life and your real life. Online lives were much more anonymous uh, in 1998. Social media didn't exist. And I think it is important to to acknowledge that the film could not have possibly predicted the erasure of that line between your online life and your real life. It, it couldn't. But it also shows why those lines are important and why it is important to be honest when you are engaging in that, that messy meeting point of real life and online life. There is no separation. It's just an extension. Right. And when you treat their treat them as separate entities, it opens up a whole kettle of fish for, well, catfish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, I, again, I just want to touch on that idea that, you know, it, it's negotiating those ethics and also that there is still value to older ways of connecting, of meeting people, you know, in, in an organic sense. That, that the way I, – I think the film does this well is that the way they fall in love, I mean, they, they are definitely uh, attracted and infatuated and interested in one another. But they fall in love by drinking coffee and giving flowers to each other. Well, and I, th- I think what it gets at, again, the thing that it couldn't have predicted is it's honesty, right? Yeah. It's not – it's allowing that anonymity to slowly but surely be erased. And, yeah. and you know, again, don't, don't tell the internet everything because uh, it's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain amount of uh, – I think honesty uh, in your your online brand. If you want to phrase it in such a crass way, uh, I like to phrase it that way because I think it's funny. But uh, you know, I, I think there's something there that again the film couldn't have possibly predicted, but it accidentally says something very interesting about when you try to separate uh, those aspects of your life and when you try to be dishonest about who you are in real life. It uh, looks real gross. Yeah, it does not go well for you. And yeah, no, it, I think. Uh, history has vindicated Greg Kinnear's character a little bit. Um, he is still a real pompous turkey. I want to see a buddy comedy of Greg Kinnear and Bill Pullman. Uh, <sighs> yes. Living together in an odd couple type mm. situation. Mm-hmm. Both having been jilted by Meg Ryan. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, really, really good on that uh, show, Sinner. 
the center, I think. Uh, Bill Pullman. Oh, yeah, okay. he's apparently really good on that. I like to watch it. I love I'm, Bill Pullman. I like Kinnear missed, too. Missed opportunity. Same, uh, but I knew. Uh, he, yeah, Kinnear's had a pretty good career. I, I, Stronger than Pullman. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Pullman's really been underutilized. Yeah, I mean, he's a handsome guy, but he's not like leading rom com handsome guy. And I think they tried to do that in the nineties. Some with them in the early nineties. Uh, what was the twenty eight? Uh, twenty not. What's the? Isn't he like in a coma or she's in a coma or something? Uh, while you were sleeping. Yeah, while you were sleeping. That's, that's what I'm not Kennard though. That's somebody else. That's no, Pullman. Is it Pullman? I don't think so. Isn't it? I I, I, I thought not, he was in it. I'm the internet's seeing, losing its mind right I'm now. I hope so. Right yeah, they're, now. They're, Greg Kinnear's losing his mind. That the internet's losing it. I'm mind. seeing a face that Ke- looks Keith like Keith Smith Chris has already looked it up. But it's not him. All right. Well, while Arthur goes to the internet, I, I will say that I think Bill Pullman has the same problem of a lot of kind of handsome guys. Uh, it's that his inner he has a, a kind of a neurotic uh, anxiety. He's he's got a a real Jesse Eisenberg energy mm-hmm. with a strong jaw, and that's that's a weird combo. I think casting directors have a hard time with that. Yeah, uh, and probably less casting directors and I, than uh, maybe studio executives. They have a hard time being like, "Why are you putting this handsome guy in this role where he's got to be a weirdo?" Well, because yeah. he's kind of a weird guy. And I, I don't want to take that away from Bill Pullman. I think he's awesome. I, I I love the energy that he brings to his performances. Even his performance as president in Independence Day is kind of uh, against type in an interesting way. It's so good. He is our president. He is. There's nothing but we... respect for my president. Yeah, Bill Pullman, you know it. He isn't while you were sleeping. You crushed it, Arthur. Dustin was I wrong. Was wrong. Totally wrong. He's also in... Uh, oh, you know what? I'm thinking about the guy in the coma. Singles? So he's the other guy. He's the he's the guy guy. Probably yeah. He's the I guy think guy. he's the lead, right? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just only seeing the guy in the coma. Ah. You know what it is? It's it's a different thing, but it's kind of the Skeet Ulrich thing, right? Skeet Ulrich yeah. has got that kind of scuzzy, dangerous energy, but it pretty boy good looks. Bill mm-hmm. Pullman, you know, rugged leading man type looks, neurotic energy. We should do Lost Highway. Man, we should. I okay, love... we're getting off the rails. Yeah, we really are getting Last off the point, rails. Last point. LOL. Laugh out loud. Capitalism saves the day. Yes, it does. Ah. Yes, it does. Tom Hanks's vicious book empire, lots of love, liberates Meg Ryan from her her days as a shopkeeper, so she can write the next great American children's book. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, bad. Damn, Nora Ephron, it's, come on. Much like how the Hollywood studio system really empowers the small independent. Yeah, it kind of is like that, isn't it? A little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it just like that? How it? Uh, oh, I don't know. Takes somebody like uh, you know uh, Josh Tran. Gives him the keys to Fantastic Four and then blames him when it doesn't go well. Ew. Yeah, isn't exactly like that. And John Carter, who did that one? Uh, was one of the Pixar guys, so yeah. he was already in the Not studio Brad system. Bird, one of the others. Uh, Colin Trevorrow gets lifted off of Safety Not Guaranteed, and then everybody blames him for uh, Jurassic World not being great. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's still happening. Uh, the the woman who directed The, the Rider just got uh, the keys to the, to the Marvel car. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's awesome. Like... It's a weird mixture of you want to be excited for people, but uh, it doesn't always work out. And uh, this film tries to say it always works out, no matter what happens, no matter how often uh, the wheels of uh, economics uh, holding you underneath them, you'll find a way to be your best self. No, not always. Sometimes Meg Ryan just, like, stays on unemployment until her unemployment checks run out, and then she's out of money. Duh, comrade. Yeah, sucks, man. That's all I But at least, uh, at least she got with uh, America's dad. Um. Yeah. Well, is there any else? Is Tom Hanks handsome enough to be with Meg Ryan? No. 
I guess if they're both in their late 30s and single. I'm going to say Joe versus the Volcano Tom Hanks is handsome enough to be with Meg Ryan. I don't think you've got male Tom Hanks is handsome enough to be with Meg Ryan. I don't know. No. I don't, uh-uh. Hard no. I don't. I don't. That, that is kind of the problem with you've got mail a little bit. They've got good chemistry. They really do. They're great scene partners. I don't know that I buy them in a relationship together. And that's that's kind of yeah. a weird thing because again, great chemistry in all of these films that we see them in. They are wonderful scene partners. I don't know that I buy that they're going to end up together. Just uh, yeah. it's something to think about when you think about romantic comedies. How much do I believe that these people are going to end up together? Uh, it's a real uh, studio movie thing where you get a, a knockout gorgeous uh, lady and a real average looking guy. Yeah. It's 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 uh who's usually it, 15 to 20 years older. Well, I think lately it's more closer to 10 to 15, but yes, very often. So I mean, they're I mean, I mean general but Hanks and Ryan are pretty close in age, right? I don't think so. Uh, really? No, I think they're pretty close. I think. Yeah. We'll find out. But it's it's just a few steps removed from that uh King of Queens type thing, right? Mhm. I mean, it's it's not the same thing, but uh, it's, it's real close. It's, it shares real estate with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, romantic comedies are an interesting kettle of fish. We haven't really done any on this show before. No, and that really that is one of the genres that really we ought to spend more time with, honestly. No, because they don't get given any credit, and I think there is a lot to be gleaned from romantic comedies. What's oh. the last one you did, uh, Clueless? Uh, and I wouldn't even call Clueless a romantic comedy. It's a teen. It's a teen comedy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, most teen comedies have romantic subplots, but uh, I mean. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that we've done a proper capital R, Full capital C rom com. Rom com. I'm glad you had to lose guy in ten days. Six years. Oh, we've got to do how to lose guy in ten days. Do we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. I do like Matthew Mahogany. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> right, right, you know, right, you right. do. I, I did get um, some uh, text message feedback about how my my love for mahogany. Did you? And uh, yeah, they they thought it was um, a little much, and I said my, it's never a little too much. It's always um, somebody and, thought we were too in love with Matthew McConaughey. Me personally, I believe you personally. Look, I'm here to say, none of us. We were all downplaying how much we like McConaughey in Rain of Fire. Truth, uh, or in general. Oh my God. I'm just here to say Meg Ryan's five years younger than Hanks. There you I go. Oh, just five. Yeah. Well, they have, I mean, they kind of hit this. I mean, when Harry met Sally, he's late 80s, and that's when he's kind of starting that's out true. with big and stuff. Yeah, that's true. But Dustin's got a good point. Uh, I think it's more a problem in uh, the 50s and 60s. Uh, you get those, like, 25, 30-year <laughs> age Grant games. playing across from, you know, 50-year-old well, Cary Grant and a 20-year-old or Bogart and Bacall. Right. Like, Kim Novak Bacall's, and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, High yeah. Noon, which I mentioned earlier this episode. I mean, yeah. B- Bacall's 19 on what, Key Largo, what, the <laughs> first movie they worked together, and Grant's already in his, or Bogart's already in his 50s, I think. 40s, gross. 50s. It's gross. It's, yeah. Look, my parents are 16 years apart, and I still think that's nasty as hell. Yeah, well, it matters less and less the older and older you get. Yeah, well, exactly. They were old when they met each other. People, yeah. uh, people in these movies are usually uh, allegedly playing the same age, and that's when right. it gets weird. Um, yeah, I think we should uh, do more rom-coms on this show, though, because uh, if ever there was a genre that's not going to get talked about in film studies, it's probably romantic comedies. If Dalton ever gets uh, nominated as Good Trash representative, he gets to uh, demand more rom-coms in his podcasts. I am here before you today to <laughs> promise you more kissing, more hugging, more loving. More right. snacks in the vending machine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, hey, um, let's render a verdict on um, these films. Uh, as, Deal. As a trilogy. As a trilogy. As a trilogy. Okay. Someone, do they need to see the Hanks Ryan trilogy? Shelf. Elf. Or. <laughs> Shelf. Shelf. Or. Shelf. 
trash elsewhere instead. <laughs> you had to say the to- okay. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it's a trilogy show. Arthur, do you want this first? Or you want I'll me to take for it? it. I'll, okay. You know what? Shelf. Based on the strength of Joe versus the volcano alone, because <laughs> people need to see that movie. So you're saying shelf Joe, but maybe not everything else. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I like you've got mail quite a bit. Actually, I think it's really fun. I think it's got a lot of heart and charm to it, and I I would appreciate that. So those, based on the strength of those two, driven primarily by Joe versus the volcano, uh, but I did an Elson instead for each movie in the the the, the trilogy. Sure. Uh, for for Life of Pi with that, I th- or for just ruin that. Yep. Uh, but with Joe vs. Volcano, I think you watch Life of Pi. Nice. I think that's a Very nice cool. pairing there. Um, I, I do like how um, Richard Parker and um, Pi fall in love. I do too. That's very nice. It's a beauty that dare not speak his name. Um, <laughs> I think that with uh, there, there's a line that I really appreciate in uh, Sleepless in Seattle when Rosie O'Donnell says, "You're not in love. You're in, you're you want to be in love in a movie." Yeah, it's a good line. And I thought of Don John. Uh, which really tinkers with those ideas. That's a Joseph Gordon-Levitt yeah. movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Which tinkers with those he, ideas. He wrote of, and directed that, didn't he? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I know he directed it. I think he wrote it. Uh, but it, it plays with that idea of, you know, obviously his his view of relationships are formed by pornography and instant gratification and that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scarlett Johansson also has the same idea of that love should look like a rom-com. Yeah. Right? Oh. And, yeah, and it, there's an interesting dynamic that takes place in that relationship because of that. Sold. Uh, and then finally... Uh, you gotta watch when Harry met Sally. You you gotta get the. I think that's the proper beginning for a Meg Ryan trilogy. I I think you do when Harry met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle. You've got mail, um, but Hanks isn't in there. So, all right. There well, thank you it. very much for that, Mister Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? <gasps> Are you yeah, okay? it's trash. It's trash. I I can't. I I like Joe versus the Volcano quite a bit. Um. It's not strong enough to save those other two movies. And I, I find uh, You've Got Mail utterly charming. It is a great Saturday afternoon, nothing else going on movie. It's completely charming. I cannot say you have to watch any of these movies. Got a couple of them concrete shoes just uh, going to be sleeping with the fishes, I suppose. Uh, I suppose so. Look, I'm going to show my bias here. and Leave I'm the gun, take the cannoli. The older I get, the more I realize the 1990s were absolute and total garbage. Everything good about the 1990s... Uh, came as we were starting to reckon with the 2000s. It was all the artists who saw the writing on the wall, and that's all we'll say about that. So here are some romantic comedies from the last five years or so that I think all of which, uh, well, with the exception of one, I think almost none have the same uh, cultural cachet as You've Got Mail or Sleepless in Seattle, and I think they're all a lot better. Uh, First up, uh, the one that's probably got more walking around money, The Big Sick. Obviously, it's an Oscar nominee. Uh, but just a, a really good film that interrogates the ways in which when you start to fall in love with somebody, you kind of got to uh, make peace with your family and their family because uh, th- those dynamics are going to inform your dynamic going forward. And uh, just a really good movie, Obvious Child, uh, a film from a few years ago uh, starring Jenny Slate that I really like, uh, a film that I think does a better job about talking about adult relationships. Uh, obviously, these films are all centered around people and their uh, their 30s, uh, even though I think I think Hanks and Meg Ryan are both in their 40s when You've Got Mail comes out. But they're all, in. even though this is a 10-year cycle of films, that seems to be casting all of them between like 33 and 36. But uh, I think Obvious Child is a really great movie about uh, relationships in your late 20s. Uh, Sleeping with Other People uh, with Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie, another case of really pretty ladies and okay-looking guys. But a, a film that... 
I like how horny it is. Here's my theory. I think rom-coms should be either for teens or for adults. And I think there's too much mixing. If it's about adults, it's got to be rated R because adults like talking about sex. It's one of the first things you're going to talk about if you're getting in a relationship uh, with another adult. Probably going to talk about sex and stuff. That movie talks about banging a bunch. Movies about uh, falling in love for teens. Don't put adults in them. Just make a movie about teens. If you're going to have chaste, sexless love, just make it about 15-year-olds, man. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's my theory anyway. I like I, I like the pick of sleeping with other people. It, it really, I, I watched that recently for the first time in, in prep for this because mm-hmm. I was trying to watch some other rom-com stuff. Uh, and that definitely feels like a very modern version of When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Uh, I, everything that I've heard about it, uh, definitely that seems to be a big touchdown it for that It feels like film. a very spiritual successor to what, what's going on in that film. Yeah, it makes me want to go... Arthur, you you really are doing a good job of uh, singing the praise of When Harry Met Sally. I think I'm going to have to make quick work of uh, that uh, for homework. Uh, it's uh, free on Voodoo. Oh, good to know. Uh, one more? Uh, yes, I do have one more. How to Be Single, starring Dakota Johnson, a romantic comedy about not ending up in a relationship, which I think is pretty cool. Um, n- not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but I still think it's a more successful film that sticks to its guns a lot better than any of these. Uh, how bad do I think these don't stick to their guns? So bad that you should watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend uh, on the CW, which is a show that does a great job of interrogating all of the shit that we've been talking about over the last two episodes. It's a lot more nuanced than that. It certainly is, Arthur. Uh, it, it is a show literally just about how rom-coms kind of cook our brains and make us bad at talking to each other about our feelings, honestly. Um, Love it. It's a great show. Uh, it's legitimately one of the best shows on television right now, uh, bar none. Um, uh, you know what? I was going to throw out one more, but I can tell everybody's ready for me to be done talking, so I'm going to go ahead and call it there. That's how many things I think you should watch before you watch these movies, just to, to give you some frame of reference, though. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to go ahead and say shelf, um, although if you didn't get sleepless, I wouldn't be mad at you. Um, but yeah, Joe vs. Volcano is the only one that's actually on my shelf already. Um, and I'm gonna recommend some classic films, um, just to kinda, uh, so Casablanca we've already mentioned, uh, Fair to Remember we've already mentioned, um, both movies I think you should definitely check out. Uh, Shop Around the Corner I haven't seen, but I love Jimmy Stewart, so. Tom yeah. Filmstruck. So probably a thing to check out there as well. I'm gonna say to have and to have not, I'll see Bacall and Bogart together. I think it's great and it's a lot of fun and it's interesting, um, as a movie. Uh, African Queen, more Bogart. Uh, just, uh, again, uh, seeing some of that stuff at work, uh, which is sort of like your Joe versus the Volcano uh, analog. And uh, lastly, uh, just to see a good chemistry team up. Check out the Thin Man, William Powell, Myrna Loy. Yes. They are so good together. Yes. And uh, the screwball comedy meets the detective story, and it is fantastic. Their chemistry is second to none. That's a one of the best on-screen couples I think I've ever amazing. seen. Amazing, it really is. This is the thing I'm curious about uh, because I, I really am excited about the prospect of doing more rom-coms in the future. Much like Arthur had a litmus test for coming-of-age films when we did that marathon, I'm curious. Do either of you just spitballing real quick have a litmus test for what makes a good romantic uh, comedy couple? What makes or even one? just a good romantic co- it doesn't have to be a romantic comedy just good romantic chemistry between two characters I think they've got a good they've got to have a great banter mm-hmm. yeah I think they've got to be able to play off of each other that's yeah. big for me mm-hmm. it's the dialogue has believable. to be sharp electric um I, 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 that's probably the biggest thing for me I mean it's believable I guess somewhat you know mm-hmm. somewhat believable that this could be a thing that happens you know mm-hmm. uh, I think there's got to be some sort of tension mm-hmm. uh, driving a uh, narrative um 
But I think for me, it's the biggest thing is just chemistry and being able to riff off of each other and play off of each other and just balance each other. And such. I, I don't think you can have a film where uh, A overpowers B and it becomes their movie. I think they have to be able to have similar strength on screen. And I think that's what you see with uh, Bogart Bacall or you see it with Hanks and Ryan. I mean, you know, Meg's great. In all, I mean, in all these movies, she's great. Um, but she more than you know carries her own. She she steals Joe versus the volcano. She should have at least as many Oscars as Tom Hanks does. Yeah, she, yeah she's, she's very great. good. Uh, and so I think for me that's the biggest thing is just that that key relationship that's going to be driving this narrative. It has to be. It has to have that chemistry, even charisma, power levels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the way in which you know that is that when you see them on screen together, I mean, I think it has to be whip smart writing. I think w- the writing helps. Is, is definitely yep. uh, of mass important. Doesn't matter how much chemistry they have, um, it w- it'll fall apart. But with that whip smart writing, is their ability to deliver those lines in dialogue in such a way that you forget that this is a script. That's yep. a, that's that's, yeah. that's it. That yep. I, I think that. That kind of hits uh, much less crassly what I was going to get at, which is I, I need to feel that sexual tension, man. Yeah. And and that, I think that's exactly what it is, though. You need to forget that you're watching a movie and believe these are two friends of yours. And I think we mentioned this on the last episode. These are two friends that of you yours. That you want to get together. And you desperately want them to get together because you can te- they're the only two that don't know that they're perfect for each other. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the magic, man. So uh, th- thus ends the epic. There you go. Um, that's an hour and eight minutes of analysis, dear listener. Guys. <laughs> yeah. Next week. It's oh, time. Hey, guess what's coming up? It gets out spooky. <laughs> it's the season of the witch. It's the seventh annual mm. Shocktober Marathon. Sam Hain is in the building. Sam Hain? Sam Hain? Sam Hain? It's fun to say it wrong. I think Sam it's Samhain. I Look, we're schmucks I mean, here. Yeah, it's true. We, we're not We're not actually spooky boys. We just really like spooky movies. It's true. We are going to give um, picks to each co-host um, for this, and Arthur gets first picked, and we don't know what it is. And we've got a very special treat to round out this marathon. <laughs> to round out this marathon? Oh. I mean, at the end of the month, when we do our big thing that we're going to do for this marathon. That's true. Yeah. We've, we've got, but we've to lead got, up to that, we've each got a pick to set the stage. Yeah, we've got a special surprise for you to close out Shocktober. Shocktober 7, by the way. I know. Holy shit. 7. I'll do one more. Good. Um, Show or Shocktober, you haven't I'm figured it out. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Dangling is, participle patrol right there. Yeah, you, you're a tricky boy. <laughs> and seven's very appropriate. You see, uh, the other day, I watched a video that I found and I I got a phone call right afterwards <laughs> that said seven days god damn it now I for some reason I think I need you guys to watch this movie with me I'm not gonna do it I, I desperately desperately need you to watch this movie with me before the seven days are up your favorite horror movie is Gore Verbinski's The Ring because we're gonna watch the Ring. We are Naomi Watts, Gore Verbinski, right? Yes. Not, okay, not Ringu. Not yeah. Ringu. Okay. All right. That's an interesting. I Arthur, you're one of like three people I know that really likes that movie, and I didn't know you were one until just now. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it upright. Dustin doesn't look happy about this. Uh, well, I haven't actually seen it, so maybe it'll be. Better. I've only seen it the once, and uh, I remember being surprised at how good it was. Honestly. Oh really? Yeah. Well, maybe so. I can't speak to the power of the sequels, but I like the, the first, first one. one's good. 
All right, well, there you go, dear listener. We're going to take a look at, you know, these are the things, these are your options right now. You can look at a Meg Ryan, a Tom Hanks love story, or Ringu, and have a conversation, because that's how schizophrenic this show is. And look, we, we, our, our tastes are uh, innumerable. Yeah, or something, or just lacking. But... <laughs> 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 you can make an argument <laughs> or whatever it is you're saying i'm still thinking about uh, ring of fire so or rain of fire so yeah you you could make the argument our taste is lacking oh my ring of fire yes the dragons discover a video <laughs> that when they watch it yeah. they fall in uh-huh. love with tom hanks <laughs> they realize they've been wrong to fight Matthew they get a medieval message uh-huh. of communication yeah that says in seven days ye shall <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast. The Good Trash Genrecast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music this week is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, as performed by Israel Kamakawali.